Brooklyn. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. And with us today is uh, co-host Jessica Hines of Meditative Writing. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And uh, today's Memorial Day, uh, 2019, we're having uh, our special guest, Bianca Stone, who's a writer and visual artist. She was born and raised in Vermont and moved to New York City in 2007, where she received her MFA from NYU. She collaborated with Ann Carson on Antigonox, a book pairing Carson's um, translation of Antigone with uh, Stone's illustrations and comics, New Directions 2012. Stone is the author of the poetry collection Someone Else's Wedding Wows. Wedding Wows? <laughs> it's a little tricky to say. Um, to that tin book. Yeah. <laughs> Tin House Books and Octopus uh, Books 2014, Poetry Comics from the, the Book of Hours um, 2016, and uh, Mobius Strip Club of Grief, uh, Tin House 2018. And uh, her poems, uh, Poetry Comics and Nonfiction, appeared in a variety of magazines, including Poetry, Jubilant, and Tin House. She has returned to Vermont with her husband and collaborator, Pope and Peace, and their daughter, Odette. But they run the Ruth Stone Foundation Letterpress Studio. Welcome, Bianca. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So, um, you know, I, I invited you on because I had read uh, Mobius Trip Cup of Grief, which I really loved. And maybe we could start the conversation off with that book. Um, and then I went back and, and found some of your other books, uh, some of the, the coverage of comics and such in the, in the Queen's Library. Um, so why don't we start off with that book and tell us a little bit about um, Mobius Ship Club of Grief. It's the most recent book, right? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, yeah. So why don't we start off with that and uh, tell us a little bit about the evolution of it and, and how it came to be. Sure. Um, well, the title of the book, The Mobius Ship Club of Grief, was born out of a title of my grandmother Ruth Stone's poem called The Mobius Strip of Grief. And... Um, she, she was a poet and, um, I was very close with her growing up and, uh, she passed away in, um, it was 2011 and, uh, I was, a lot of the writing of this book was, um, born out of writing elegies to her and sort of processing the grief of the first time of losing someone that was so important in my life. Um, and the irony was, was that I was spending a lot of time with her poetry and she had a lifelong relationship with grief, having lost my grandfather really early. Um, she was in her early forties, had three children and he committed suicide. He was also a writer. Um, and she never remarried and was never able to fully recover from that. And but the amazing thing was that she was completely dedicated to her writing career and her poetry and um, processed a lot of that guilt and grief through her writing and it became this very intense part of our family. So I sort of felt like I was picking up the mantle a little bit in in uh, in my new grief towards her. So in a way, I was playing with the idea of exactly what she was playing with, the Mobius Strip, which is a mathematical term exploring um, the, it, it's a little bit, I always think of it as a little bit like the infinity symbol, this figure eight, um, but it, it's a it's a continuous, um, uh, if you travel on the strip, you just go forever and forever and forever. Um, 
what the grief was like. It just seemed never ending and it was passed on from, you know, family member to family member. And then I was, um, I randomly started writing the Mobius Strip Club of, <laughs> I just like the pun sort of like came into my head and I didn't think <laughs> it would come to anything because it's completely ridiculous and absurd and almost offensive in talking about grief, but it was like, it just made sense to me to process this this stuff, and it felt like I was thinking about all the exhibitionism of grief and the sort of of obsessiveness that uh, comes with, it was almost as if um, it was a, a... there was a certain pleasure in witnessing one's grief and that I was playing with that in terms of it combining with the idea of the strip club and women and uh, yeah, it expanded out from there. So that, that was sort of the origins of the book. Um, and it goes in a lot of different directions. It doesn't, it's, it's not completely beholden to that conceit, but. Yeah. So it's really great. I mean, I think that um, explores as uh, Blake John Asper says, uh, supposed to be emerging pathologies and sensibilities. These are sensibilities of, I think, the the, uh, the gifts of this generation uh, to be able to, uh, um, of her generation to be able to, um, uh, you know, explore the kind of guilt and the and the griefs and the and the pathologies of of sexuality around sexuality and around uh, yeah. around dying and all this kind of thing. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of similar to the for the listeners. Um, uh, they compare it to. Um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Dante's, uh, you know, kind of going through this purgatory. Oh, and Dante's yeah, Dante's Inferno. Yeah, yeah where he kind of got, he's guided through this nether region or nether world, this dark mirror. Uh, in this book, of this dark mirror of uh, of what what's going on in in society. Yeah, it's really a. I think it's such a lovely um, metaphor, just because I think that for a lot of people, strip clubs represent a place where we can interact with what is repressed in our society in mm-hmm. in in a safe space and and I do think that grief is something that we we do it, it is repressed in our society I think yeah. anger and grief um <clears throat> excuse me we don't really there's so much um shame associated with expressing those things as daily emotions and so I just thought that was I was like, oh, yeah, I was like, I think I have been to the strip club of grief <laughs> yeah. many yeah. times this month. And yeah. and yeah. it's so lovely to think that what if there was a physical space for that, which, um, yeah, so I think that that was, like, lovely for me. Yeah, it, you know, it's the, the thing about it is that it's completely immersive. Everybody is going to be experiencing it at some point. Society isn't doesn't have the greatest relationship in talking about death, um, and in any way. So, yeah, having that place in order to process it and look at it, even mm-hmm. to look at it and look at the way we we handle the body itself, because you know I, I explore a lot the idea of the funeral in this book and how it it becomes once once you're actually experiencing a funeral for the first time for someone you have a like a very strong bond with um it becomes very strange and morbid um to think about 
the body and and how we deal with the body and what we do with it and yeah so i mean there's it's there's just so much there to work with and i and i do like i feel like we do need a place where we can process these things yeah it's interesting to me that as far as scanning my mind right now as far as i can recall a funeral is the only place that where there's a public space where grief is acceptable to be felt in whatever way. I think the other places are are always in the dark or hidden away. It's in a movie theater in the dark, and or it's you know in a dungeon or it's hidden away in a therapy office. And yeah, and I just think that that's not fair because there's so many things that you need to grieve for that we don't have funerals for. Um, you know, I'm having a lot of grief of various relationships, business relationships, and personal relationships where. You know, I've been struggling to find that ritual, that space that doesn't feel like it's hidden and repressed to express that. And and that is why I think poetry and art is so important, because I found that most of the <clears throat> most of the negative emotions that I've had, uh, the only way that I've been validated as that's acceptable in our society is when I put it through art. Yeah. And I'm so happy that I found that, but there's so many people who don't have that or don't have the inclination or the desire or haven't don't have the tools. And and so yeah, I, I you know, I'm calling to order right now. Someone create a public space yeah. event for, you know, these emotions that you we have such great places to experience excitement and joy and even fear. I mean, we have we have uh, haunted houses that we can experience yeah. fear in and, and roller coasters, but you know, there really isn't. And, you know, if someone out there could create that, I will well, help make that happen. It just made me think of, I think it was Carl Jung, uh, was it a talk about the shadow, you know? Shadow yeah, mm. shadow and work. Some, yeah, and so she talked about, like, the need for humans to have a place to work through their darkness, negativity, anger, um, and that a lot of people don't have that, and that it ends up being extremely destructive um, yeah. on themselves, but also they can project it onto other people like their children and stuff, and the children can become the sort of place where everybody puts their, like, their, their, they, they, they expect the children to be the, the sort of dump where all the negativity and anger mm-hmm. and grief goes. Yeah. And that's really tough. I mean, I know that for a fact that there's people in my family that I feel like they got they got that element of it and it can be so destructive yeah uh young's uh the basic essence of the shadow for anyone who doesn't know is that essentially anytime you have um a want that comes into conflict with um your personal societal um religious morality it gets repressed inside the self and that Mm -hmm. repression becomes a shadow and that these shadows that live inside us are constantly seeking unity with the whole self the whole identity and the more we repress them, the more they find ways to unconsciously vo- vocalize themselves. And usually that's through our dreams, our fantasies, um, uh, comedy, actually our humor, um, a lot through our anger. And then what most yep. people would refer to as a Freudian slip. Yeah. Um, and th- that's your shadows. And it's dangerous because he believed that if you repressed those shadows enough, what can happen is that one shadow you know, when you're going into crisis can actually overwhelm and take over the entire identity and that a lot of people, a lot of people then they identify as that single shadow and they become extraordinarily destructive because if 
if your desire to be violent, you know, gets repressed in a way, and then one day it takes over, you then become a person whose entire identity is, I meet everything with violence. And, and so finding safe spaces to express those repressions, I mean, for me, definitely, it's like, de- definitely through my writing, I write a lot of thrillers and horror pieces <laughs> that are quite violent. Yeah. And when people yeah. meet me, they're so shocked because they're like, you're so sweet and loving. And, you know, and I'm just like, yeah, because like, you know, yeah. I put it in I put in the writing so that I wasn't always this way. You know, I used to be a much more angry, violent person. And I found a way through film to be able to communicate that. Um, but it is. And yes, it does definitely get projected into families or relationships in a way that, yeah. you know, is is quite destructive. So more shadow work people yeah Yeah, and i feel like even like reading um you know reading other people's work is you know in that different dimension would be maybe like i don't know if it has the same effect you know as as you yourself writing it or or Mm -hmm. expressing it in your own way as you know say you know i know people are are we're so obsessed with reading mysteries and thrillers and um, and watching it on TV and violence that in some ways that's our way to sort of like experience those things we want to experience. Yeah, well, I think that's – I think it is the – what I always tell people is that I'm like it's the role of the artist is that like I will take two years to look at a part of myself that most human beings aren't willing to look at, this repressed part, and then to work through it to create something that – an audience can experience in 90 minutes and they are not going to have the same cathartic experience that I am. But I think that especially with the consumption of TV and film that, you know, I would say as a society, we are a little bit um, emotionally lethargic. And so I'm kind of like the cleaning lady of, you know, the emotions where I'm like, other people are like, I'm too busy to deal with that. I'm going to hire someone else and pay to go sit in a movie theater so that I can experience 10% of that catharsis and transformation and oh my God, that's crazy. right and it's just but i'm like it, it you're, it's it's true that like it's, and I'm, i that's why i think the arts are so important and i think that's why we're a little bit out of emotional crisis as a society and why you know i know you're interested in stoicism and why that's had this huge comeback because you know without going through that process and if you're just observing others you're getting just enough to get by but there's still a lot of shadows and energy and so then the stoicism can come in to find a way to manage that without totally just destroying every personal relationship that you have. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about stoicism and um, uh, the role of fatalism in uh, personal philosophy and your personal philosophy and how um, that can be guiding light towards maybe bringing you towards something, you know? Uh, Moral compass, yeah. Well, what's your understanding of stoicism, first of all? Because I, I, for the listeners and also myself, but just what is your, how would you encapsulate that perspective or how would you kind of formulate that perspective in uh, uh, in a way, yeah, in a kind of language? Um, I think what appeals to me about stoicism is a certain removing of the emotions. I mean, for me, I grew up in such an emotionally volatile family that was very like um uh, I don't know, getting um a reaction 
out of one another in a sort of um, heightened emotional way, um, blowout fights, and then not speaking to one another. So mm. for me, stoicism became very uh, appealing in its sort of um, endurance of hardship um, with a sort of uh, practical, logical way and saying, okay, what can I deal with and what can't I deal with? Like, what, what's in within my control and what isn't in, within my control? Mm. And just dealing with, with what is in your control. And um, I, I think it's great for anybody who's grown up with a lot of people who are anxious and full of worry and about things that they can't control. Yeah. Um, for me, that, that was like the, the one of the one of the great things about it, and um, yeah, and so I've been, you know, I'll read, I'll read different, you know, d- daily stoic, you know, journals and and whatnot, and meditations on. But I, I'm not. I wouldn't call myself like deep into that world. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not. Of course. I'm not, yeah. Like, it, it's weird how I like. I don't even know if I should go into this part of there. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I I talked to a guy who um some uh, mindfulness you know health podcast stuff and sort of like came you know and they were ta- one of the people I was listening to was talking a lot about um the sort of CrossFit community which I am like not part of at all but. Um, they are like super into like stoicism and like and that stuff. So it was funny how I like I started listening to like people talking about CrossFit, but I have no interest in doing CrossFit. <laughs> yeah, like, sort of like intense, like discipline, like you know, do it even if you don't feel like it, and you know, and challenge yourself every day. And so I, I had this sort of like uh, guilty pleasure of like listening to other people talk about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Is it? No, no, no. This is something that is happening in our so much, especially with like the rise of YouTube and the ability to like, like observe other people's lives and you trick the mind into thinking that you've done it. And there's so many people who will just, they'll like watch shows on home improvement. And and Uh, so, especially when you're watching something, because, you know, we have these mirror neurons in the brain that. that um, will activate when you are watching someone physically do something and it tricks the brain into thinking that you are actually doing that thing. And so yeah. when it comes to goal setting and or visual meditations, um, if you if you just visualize like the success of it, your body will think that you've done it and give you a dopamine release, yeah. even though you haven't versus, um, you know, if you use that visualization to like overcome the hurdles of you getting there. But it is. Um, I totally get the CrossFit thing because, yeah, listening to the – I will never do CrossFit because yeah. I just – my knees um, and also physical exercise. But, <laughs> um, uh, but it is – I think first with the stoicism thing that uh, – just to clarify in case anyone is listening, I think stoicism yeah, – some, some, <laughs> some, people, some people tend to think – use the word stoic, the connotation to mean without emotion, and that is not actually – yeah, it is. So the the, uh, the best way I've found to explain it is simply that we absolutely have emotions, but the stoic is someone who will take a moment and say, like, these are the emotions I'm having, but they do let me 
use logic and reason before I take action. Yeah. And so it's really most human beings, so logic and reason developed in the brain much later than emotion. And so most people on automatic pilot are responding to everything emotionally. And so the Stoics are saying, let's act, but you have to activate logic and reason. You have to consciously choose to use it. Most people, most of their decisions are their automatic thoughts unconscious biases, unconscious belief systems. And so the Stoics say, you know, feel what you're feeling, acknowledge the unconscious systems that are happening, but then activate logic and reason before you take action or before you create the story in your mind that will lead you to the your behavior for the rest of the day. And it's almost like saying wake up every morning and program your mind accordingly. Do not let it just run on the automatic pilot that it was left on from the night before. Mm. And so if there is anyone who that sounds good, I would definitely recommend reading some of the stuff. Um, but it is definitely not to mean that you rid yourself of emotions because that is not healthy and that is not yeah. the intention of stoicism. Yeah. Any, any more than, than you know, practicing different uh, mindfulness or things are not about getting rid of the ego because you know people are like so afraid of like oh like you're not supposed to care about yourself and like anything that you're doing you know it's, it's mm-hmm. like there's more subtleties than just like no emotion no ego it's like it's, it's deeper than that yeah i get i work with a lot of people with the meditation and, and lowering of ego and, and there's this definite fear of oh well if i don't they're, they're scared of losing their drive, especially as artists. Like, I work with people yeah. on their goals to make sure that, because I'm like, if your main goal is to, like, sell a screenplay and win an Academy Award, I'm like, very few people are going to win an Academy Award. So let's find yeah. a goal that you can go after that, you know, will not, re- that has a better statistics of you feeling successful. But finding, if you totally, if you take that too far, you do get to a place where you're like, oh, I don't need to do any of this. And then suddenly you have no motivation at all to practice your art because you're like, oh, I'm completely pleased. So I do think it's finding that combination of how do you lower your ego enough or or what I like to say is if you're going to build ego, build ego around things that actually help you. Like have an ego about being a hard worker. Have an ego about always doing the right thing for your family, you know, rather than having an ego about being a, a talented artist or about being good looking. Because, you know, yeah. looks fade and and the quality of your writing will fluctuate. You know, even Shakespeare wrote some crappers. <laughs> yeah. I definitely feel like, um, you know, that the path and such requires a little bit of, I think, uh, death awareness. That we only, we're only here for a limited time and that we're kind of, we're, you know, we're trying to maximize or trying to, you know, motivate ourselves by re- recognizing that our, everything is temporary and that we're trying to, um, you know, take advantage of these moment-to-moment awarenesses as much as possible to be able to um, do the best we can. But also, I feel like when we hear these teachings of, uh, uh, whether it be, for me, Buddhist teachings or, or various yeah. teachings, it feels like it's so perfect. And just like those um, videos where, you know, the, the pendulum swings and then another one swings, it just perfectly aligns itself. You know, and you're watching these videos. Anyone seen these videos where uh, these mechanisms and and, um, and the things just perfectly match into themselves? I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but I don't. But uh, I'm very yeah. fascinated. Yeah, it's like they have like a pendulum, and they have like a ball bouncing, and it just hits. It, mm. it perfectly lines itself. So that when the pendulum swings the other way, it, it bounces up, and mm-hmm. the thing is under it. 
So these kinds of videos are very cathartic because it's like everything's working so perfectly, just unlike <laughs> in real life, you know, yeah. where everything is, it seems appears so messed up, you know, and being yeah. able to that's find that. Something yeah. so heartbreaking about that. Yeah. It's it's like a visual a visual representation of the flow state. Yeah. For yeah. and if anyone hasn't read Chick Sent Me High's flow, go read Chick Sent Me High's flow. It's a great. Don't ask me to spell his name. I, <laughs> I keep hearing about that on like. Yeah. Show. It's a great yeah. one. It's it's a good one. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah. Um, is it? Should we do a poem? Yeah. Why we listen to a poem? Yeah. Do you have a? Oh. Do you have anything? Uh, yeah. Already. Yeah. So I brought my book. Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, I guess I, I, I mean, I, you know, going back to what we were saying about the um, Hollywood Reporter interview, um, I'll read one of the – so um, I'll, I'll read the little intro poem that has no title and then follow it up with the – one of the first poems. Odin plucked out his eyes, reaching for a string, for a swell of wisdom. He wanted to know everything there is to know of the past and future, and so it was. But the weight of wisdom made his face sour, seeing everything blown to shit, gods with it. After that, he never ate again and lived on a strict diet of alcoholic beverages at the Mobius Strip Club of Greece. I think everyone's glad I'm dead, said the stripper with the cave in face. Her fingers were bone and no sinew. She flapped her arms at the two wrens caught up in the rafters, staring down on the empty dance hall. Chirps rained like sparks from the electric saws in their hearts. No one here is glad anyone is dead, but there is a certain comfort in knowing the dead can entertain us if we wish. We line up outside looking drowned, telling whoever comes our way that we are falling very fast and that we are fine. The dead, wrinkled as jet streams cutting across the rooms with glasses lost on their heads, vitamins dissolving under their tongues, hair still growing, crackling out of their skulls in time-lapsed loops, and we file in in ones and twos, clinging to our tragedies, finding our favorite face, and it looks back at us with indifference, contempt, chill disappointment. You never came much when I was alive, says one with red hair, lying on her side, Botticelli on the stage. And now you want a piece? $20 for five minutes. I'll hold your hand in my own. I'll tell you, you were good to me. Thank you, thank you. Snap, snap. Yay. So, um, yeah, and also um, with this this piece, uh, this book, Mobile Strip Club Grief, and also with your um, illustrations and such uh, in poetry comics, you're always exposing, it seems like the, your poetry exposes the uh, duality between the 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 um the, that we try to hide and and the need to um you know kind of find redemption you know or find that 
aspect of redemption, would you say that that's kind of the, one of the major themes about kind of like the hidden as well as the, the desire for the light? Uh, or how would you phrase that? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think um, I think I like to um, not just dwell in the sort of um, pain, but also offer up some um, acknowledgement of pleasure and hopefulness and um, even maybe even a little acknowledgement towards this, maybe even hedonism of pain. Um, and in terms of, uh, would you say hiding and what's the other word you use? Uh, hiding and uh, that which you kind of yearn for as you're searching for or something or light or oh, yeah, redemption. Yeah, redemption. Redemption, yeah. Redemption, yeah. this book it was there was just so much guilt built into the love in my family that it it, it was and that was based around fear um, that this book is really um, acknowledging the guilt and feeling like I mean especially in that poem I say I'll hold your hand in my own I'll tell you you were good to me it implies that I'm, you're going to have to pay to hear that because I'm not going to tell you that. You know, I'm not going to tell you you were good to me because you weren't good enough to me. Um, and that sort of sentiment that we can never be enough for one another. And certainly that feeling on a personal level that, that people are are never good enough to me. You know, people are – I'm never fully acknowledged for my, my genius. And that being sort of on one hand true, and then on another hand not true, um, and not not being able to acknowledge um, what we do have and how much love we already have been given and what we have around us, and just that that constant tension between those two things, which is something I you know, every day I'm struggling with. You know, I want to acknowledge I want to acknowledge what is good and great and beautiful and succulent about this world, and I also want to improve it. And I want to do right, and I want to, I want to, I want to find redemption in what I've already done that I feel like is a mistake. So I, I'm exploring those things in my poetry, but that's what I'm ex- exploring in my own sort of personal um, journey. I feel, I feel like the, yeah, I, yeah, totally. totally. I'm like, yeah. like I'm, I'm, you know, thumbs upping, you know, um, that right now, absolutely. And it's interesting because it it feels like with pushing on the metaphor and externalizing things, I feel like it's almost as if you're saying that, you know, that it that all intimacy is transactional. Mm, Yeah. And for some of us who have had more difficult child like upbringings, um, you know, I definitely connect to that. I feel like I am someone who I often tell people I'm like, my love is unconditional. My time is not. And so, but time being the, and presence being the way that one can experience one's love is that it does feel like I get stuck in places where, you know, I will, it just does feel completely transactional. Like I'm keeping tabs on everything with everyone and, 
you know, that's something that I'm definitely working on and exploring in my art. Um, in this, I'm writing a play about it right now, the cycle of that, yeah. of how, like, someone teaches you that at a young age, and then yeah. you enact it, and then you start to, and only when you start to pass it on to, like, someone else, did you start to have some, or at least for me, it was only when I realized that I was teaching someone else to do that for the first time that I was like, whoa, you know, this yeah. thing that that yeah. started as a survival tactic as a child where it's like you do it yeah. because you have to to survive and then you, you get out to, of yeah. that environment. But, you know, and you're no longer in the dangerous jungle, but your instincts are still acting as if you are. And then you're just perpetuating the that, you know, that inefficient, not effective way of of interacting with people. And I think that goes and that's a nice parallel to this like idea of passing grief down that, you know, even if you choose not to have children, like we are taking what we have been given and we are either doing something with it or not. And we are giving it, you know, we're as a society, we're doing that. And, you know, I know that climate change is, uh, is something that you're interested in the way that the past generations have given us this planet and what we do with it now will be then passed on to the people that live after us, whether we individually have children or not. Um, yeah. And I think that yeah, it, you, yeah. it, that we have a responsibility both in our personal, our emotional, our, you know, and, and in, in regards to the world of we, we can only control how we use the materials we were given. But if we have no feeling of responsibility towards who we're passing it on to that's where i the sort of loop i think we're stuck in as a society right now mm-hmm. yeah and it goes back to i think why going to hospital can be appealing right now where it's like it's a constant like autopilot where you're you're blind to your reasoning why you're doing things and it's like if you stop and you're like why am i doing this i'm doing this because this is how i grew up and this is how i've always done things I'm reacting not out of logic, but out of this sort of, like, unspoken code that's been given to me and passed down through my family where this is this is how things are and this is how I react to things, um, where it's not – you're not thinking about this sort of, like – you're not even thinking laterally or, you know, you're not thinking about different options and ideas mm-hmm. and things that could be better, and we're, we're just repeating. Mm-hmm. And it can yeah. be really destructive. Well, I definitely know in my family, like, uh, the thing that I had to learn the most was, was, you know, not being a victim, of realizing that I do have a choice. That just because, yeah. you know, Absolutely. just because these were my automatic systems coming out of my childhood doesn't mean that I have to continue to enact them. And so many people think, like, they think that personality is, is uh, like, they don't realize how fluid everything is. Like your personality yeah. is is fluid. Like your emotional state is fluid. Your these are all things that can be practiced. You can practice bravery and become more brave. Yeah. You can practice yeah. compassion and become more compassionate. You can practice selflessness. That like there are very few people who were raised in perfect families. It, no one that like is just automatically that way. But so many of the things that I didn't like about myself for a long time, I thought, well, that's just who I am. Until I started practicing mindfulness and, and reading up on a lot of uh, and, and, and neurolinguistic programming and realizing that, you know, I can reshape my brain. You can retrain your neural pathways to have different reactions. And if that was the type of education that I think we got in our public schools, rather than being told, oh, talent is fixed. I mean, imagine 
<laughs> yeah. 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 It would be so yeah. Yeah. yeah, and especially people who are born into, you know, places where they, you know, the family life isn't great or they have parents that are working so much that they can't, they don't have as much time to spend with their kids. And and if we just, if, if people at a younger age were taught these tools, then they would have healthier ways of moving out of those environments, which yeah. would then put less trauma on them, which then imagine the generation after that, mm. you know, we would be at a place where maybe we wouldn't be sitting here going, well, I don't know how to fix the planet because I'm just one person and yeah. it seems so big right. and inevitable. So I guess I'll just write it out and hope to enjoy the time that we have left. Yeah. There would be yeah. this sense of like, we actually can collectively do something because, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like that's what we should be having in, you know, middle school. Mm. I mean, cause our, our basic personalities, our basic belief systems um, form right around age is 8 to 12 is when they start to become, I mean, it's always plastic, but, like, they start to solidify for the first time around that age. And so if we could, you know, if we could get into the schools at that age and, and be like, yeah, reading, writing, you know, mindfulness or understanding, you know, ways of dealing, using the mind in this way, um, but I mean, I don't. Yeah. Like, again, I'm just like I will say it to the stars, and uh-huh. and I'm not quite yeah, sure how to get that going. Yeah. It's frustrating. So, what would you say is like the moment or a triggering moment uh, of a story that um, happened to you that has taught you the most important life lesson you received? Sometimes you know it can be very cerebral to think about these things in terms of like what we should be doing or what society should be doing, but something that really gets to the gut of what. Uh, teaching a life lesson that you've received up to this point? Uh, we'll see. Um, I, I guess, you know, one that comes to mind happened early, you know, probably early high school for me where about what I wanted and I couldn't seem to make my I couldn't seem to stay in school and I felt very outsider and, and a, a loner and I, I didn't want to go to public high school and um, I kept my mom kept trying to get me to try different learning you know alternative learning things and I kept quitting everything and I just I couldn't be consistent you know of course I just I had a hard teenage hood. But I remember one day realizing, and then I ended up in this uh, wonderful alternative school program in Vermont, and I just wanted to leave right away, and I felt uncomfortable and blah, blah, and then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to stick with this and see what happens and try and make the best of it, and I did, and it kind of saved my life because here I am now, and I just... um, I, I, that was one big life lesson for me is seeing things through and not giving up the moment it gets uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. That's, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. That is just like, uh, it, it is so important. I think our culture right now is really obsessed with comfort in a way that is stopping us from being able to transform. Yeah, what kind of lessons we can receive? Because I think that when we, um, 
you know, we go through the autopilot, or we go through life, you know, everything's working out fine, everything's going great, and then we, we, we don't change. And then only when there's some kind of disruption in functionality or, or, or convenience or, or comfort, then we start to think, oh, that's, these patterns are the reason why things are, are leading me to this trench or leading me to the ditch. And I'm going to try to be conscious of that, and we have the commitment of trying to realign or try to align with the with the power source that's that will give us something gifts that'll, that'll help us uh, achieve higher goals, achieve more functionality, achieve optimal optimization. And it seems like from that story that you're like, you know, that disruption, and even for myself and my own story, you know, disruption is what realigns us and brings us back, and then we have to. Also honor where we were before, but also where we're going to, yeah. where we want to go to. Yeah. yeah what would you say about that? Or how would you, um, is that, does that capture it? Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think learning about um, discomfort and adversity is basically, I mean, that's one of the biggest um, things you can do to evolve. And mm. I feel like I know a lot of people who can't get out of that place where um, they're, they're full of fear and they don't, they're afraid of um, that moment of discomfort. And that it, it's actually, you know, it's like, I hate to bring it back to working out, but, you know, for your muscles to grow, you know, you have to go through a lot of pain and your muscles have to tear apart and then they regrow and then... Um, so, so learning to, um, deal with discomfort in any sort of way, and it, it translates all over the place, you know, especially, you know, think about meditation, um, it's a perfect example of it, because the moment you sit down to meditate, you know, first you're like, oh, I'm concentrating, and this is nice, and then you start, then the discomfort begins. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Or, you know, I think mental is really... The, the mental gymnastics that start happening, um, the, the desire to move and to, I shouldn't be doing this, you know, I should be doing something else, and um, how am I supposed to just sit here and things come up in your head, and, and everything depends on not reacting, just letting things happen, being curious, and seeing where that takes you. And if you stay in this place of, like, I'm afraid I'm not even going to try, I'm going to give up right away, like, right when it starts, then you never evolve. And mm-hmm. and it's it sounds easy saying it, but when you're in it, it's almost impossible. It feels almost impossible to get over that small hump. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it's... If you do, then, then, you're, then you're off running. Yeah, I mean... With meditation, I think also with art, you know, there's always a place yeah. with creating a piece of art where it becomes really difficult and uncomfortable, oh either both with the craft or with the emotional content. And what I usually tell my writers is I'm like, listen, if you write, you're going to feel the pain and suffering of forcing yourself to write. If you don't write, you're going to feel the, feel the pain and suffering of the guilt of not writing. So you yeah, might as exactly. well choose the suffering that results in pages having been written and I think it's true of life. I'm like, we're going to suffer. You're going to feel like crap. You might as well just choose the suffering that results in the best transformation or in the best life that you can live. Because whether you go to the gym or not, you're either going to feel the pain of going to the gym or you're going to feel the guilt of not having gone. And I just am like, you know what? It's kind of like being a parent, I would assume, which is 
you cannot choose whether or not you mess up your child, but you can choose what way that you mess yeah. up your child. And and just being like, okay, I think if more people just reminded themselves, what suffering shall I choose today? And yeah. and like I know that right after this show, I'm going to choose the suffering of going to the gym and taking a class that makes me feel like a moron and, you know, feeling the public humiliation of I am the most uncoordinated person in a workout class. And that is the suffering that I choose compared to the suffering of feeling. And then after the class, it's so amazing. You're like, I did yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you've grown and you've learned. And, and next time you go, you're going to be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you don't go, it's just this perpet- you know, you're just, you're building up the shadow. You know, you're building up the, like, discomfort and guilt and shame and and your physical discomfort because you're doing you're not you know we got to remember why we're doing things like I'm writing because writing is beautiful and I want to I want to explore something I want to like contribute to this world and feel amazing and it's like it's worth it mm-hmm. it's worth it it's like people want things people expect things to be great right away mm-hmm. <laughs> like when you sit down to write a poem you're like this isn't working you know Drawing is a great example. Mm-hmm. This isn't looking how I want it to look. It's like, well, you're just, you're not done. You got to keep going. It's not going to look right, and you know, you got to, you got to go until it looks right. Yeah, one of the. And so many people can't get past that. It's not looking right right away. So. Yeah, that's the problem with like most people interact with art in a finished form. And so they don't actually know what a first draft looks like because most people don't show their first drafts. And it's one of the things I do um, with the International Screenwriting Association. We do a first draft, final draft, where we look at both the first and final draft of a, a script so that emerging writers can look at it and go, oh, the first draft of a really great script looks like a messy disaster. And, you know, and that, like, just the understanding the process of creation is hard for a lot of people because they, you know, we don't get to see. We see, you know, beautiful paintings. We read beautiful poems, but we don't. I mean, I would love to see, like, the first draft of one of your poems right next to the final draft and go, like, oh, wow, well, I can't do that, but I can do, I could probably Uh do something that looks like this first draft version. You know, I think it would be so good for people to, you know, and especially at an earlier age is to just teaching people and teaching kids that, like, the first draft doesn't need to be anything other than the truth of your exploration and that the first draft is for you to figure out what is inside of you and what materials you have to work with. And then when you have those outside of yourself, then you can start crafting them into something that might communicate to another human being. Yeah, and also... So there's going to be a lot of drafts. Yep. Yeah. Because there's going to be, you know, 99 first drafts and then there's going to be three first drafts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's sometimes it's kind of hard to keep track of how many people are working on that. But that's this one poem. They're like, I've been working on this poem for years. I'm like, write more poems. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's poets and, and you know, comic artists. Like, Stu is like a great example of people, you know, like say you're doing like com- – I think it was Roz Chad from the New Yorker, um, you know, said something about, you know, having 99, you know, out of the 99 comics that she gives the New Yorker, one gets taken, you know. So we forget that every artist on every level has a ton of sort of not final pieces 
and that's true. We only see the final pieces, and we think that 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 sums up yeah their practice. Yeah, and it's it, yeah, it, it really is a numbers game because there's so many like pieces you'll create that are actually just stepping stones for your for you to get to a place where emotionally and craft wise yeah. you're capable of doing that one poem that does go on to the New Yorker. Um, I have so many plays and screenplays that I've written that I'm like, it, they, that will never be a piece that needs to go out into the world. But I was like, oh, that's the piece where I learned, um, I learned how to do, you know, action sequences. And so I can let that go and then go to the next piece and know that as an artist, you're always developing your emotional intelligence and your craft. And, you know, just being able to be okay that you will have pieces that, you know, not all your kids can become president, you know, like, yeah. You can love them all, and you can support them all, but, you know, not yeah. all of them are going to become doctors and lawyers, and right, the right. more you're okay with that, and the more that you... Yeah. And I think that's really about finding the joy in the act of the art itself and not putting all of your joy on the validation externally that comes from the finished product, because if you don't find a way to enjoy the process you are never going to have the stamina to continue this activity for the years and years and years that is required to probably meet those external goals that you have. Yeah, and that goes back to the discomfort, too, where it's like, I'm not going to validate it all the time, so I'm not going to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And any 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 successful artist would tell you, well, some people have all the luck, but <laughs> uh, most of us uh, get rejection, 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 and that, you know, on, and on some, and, you know, you're always going to have to deal with that, and, and not pleasing everybody, and if you're, if you just stick to your art, and, and doing it for the sake of art, and for the sake of curiosity, and invention, and, you know, humanity's, uh, the greater trajectory of, explaining, exploring, and reacting to the world around them, then you're not going to get very far, and you're certainly not going to be happy. Yeah. Yeah, It seems like uh, also what we're doing is we're trying to map out the artist as being, you know, someone who shows an example to others, show example to society, kind of maps out a pathway for our communities and our communities to um, find the truth, find this truth, and discover this truth to be able to model that. So as we start to close out... uh, I want to ask you what 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 do you think is um, the ideal society? How can we get there? How can we move ourselves towards that? Or what's what's the one of the questions they ask is about you know what's wrong with society or what's what's kind of where are we guiding ourselves towards and where are we kind of bringing ourselves towards? So we've kind of been talking about that this whole episode, but just to kind of give you another uh, crack at that. Imagine for other people a world that does treat our planet with the importance that it deserves and sort of connect both how we live on this planet with um, our government, our local government, and our national government. So I don't, I don't know how, you know, I'll leave that to the 
um, people who know more about how to do that, but somehow I feel like in, incorporating into government um, uh, sustainable living on this planet and also the arts and having them be not separate entities, but actually how we live our life and how we our society functions and having art and the sciences together in our government. I think that would get us towards a more uh, uh, enlightened people, species on this planet. And I just hope, I don't know, <laughs> I a little hope into the Democrats, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So um, we're listening to Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you to help support our mission. We invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps us continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible for Folk Sense Law. Again, that's radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, I encourage listeners to go to radiofreebrooklyn.org slash truth to power to listen to our past 71 episodes. This is episode 72, I believe. And, um, you know, just catch up. And uh, you can listen to us on the go at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash iPhone or slash Android. Um, and, you know, you don't have to be chained to your computer. Uh, yeah, keep up with our events and uh, go to radiofreebrooklyn.org slash newsletter and you'll be subscribed to our monthly newsletter for latest news about new programming, upcoming RFB events, uh, sign up at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Great, great. Thanks so much. Uh, do you have anything you want to, um, at your website or anything you're, you're doing coming up, Bianca? Yeah, I have one more thing I want to check out, the Roofstone Foundation at RoofstoneFoundation.org, where we're trying to really um, build something beautiful up here in, in Vermont, and we would love for you to learn about it and, and be part of it. Great, great. And, uh, Jess? Yeah, so um, if anyone would like to get some articles and tips or workshops that I'm doing um, in meditative writing and screenwriting, you can find all of that information at meditativewriting.org. Great, great. And also for myself, uh, I'll be doing a reading on July 10th uh, in Queens. So go to Poets of Queens, uh, Google Poets of Queens, and I think they'll be posting that soon, the, the whereabouts of that. But definitely I encourage people to check out VJR Nathan. B-I-J-A-Y-R-Nathan.com and find out more about my own writing as well. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. I'll Thank play, you. A, so play a, out music. Thank you. Bye. Go.